0: I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn uh, in the Old Testament to the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. We're going to be spending a little bit of time here this summer. I'll uh, kind of give you an idea of what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to be doing a short series on revival, uh, and I'll be giving three messages in June, and then I'll be taking a sabbatical in July, and during that time, that's when Jason and Lauren and Jim are going to be sharing uh, messages in response to the questions that you've been turning in, and they're going to have a six-week series when God goes to Starbucks or Northwood's Roastery or Caribou, or you get the idea, you know, and, uh, and just when we have those conversations with people, what are the kind of questions that are coming up? And then in August, I'll be back, and I'll uh, share two more messages on revival from Second Chronicles, so let me read for us this passage. I'm going to read verses 11 to 16, Second Chronicles, chapter 7. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord in the royal palace, and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, "I have heard your prayer." and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Let's pray. Father, how good it is to know that you are a God who hears and answers prayer. And you have not changed in that. You delight in the prayers of your children. You long for us to come into your presence You've provided a way that we can do that through Jesus Christ, O Lord, at any time. And we don't need to go to a temple. We don't need to go to a special place to pray, because you hear us right where we are when we pray from our heart. And so, Father, would you teach us in this series about revival and teach us about what you long to do in and among us and in our nation and in our world. And we ask it all for your glory. Amen. Amen. I want to begin with a question this morning, why should we talk about revival? Why should we talk about revival? And the answer to that is because we care about our nation and we care about the church. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with Christians who are concerned about the drift that they see in our country. This kind of moving away from God, moving away from the authority of his word. This religious pluralism that wants to treat all religions as the same or thinks that they are the same. This movement away from Christ and the authority of his word. And we see in our society increased sexual immorality. We see the ongoing violence and abuse or the breakup of marriages and families. And all of that grieves our heart. And we look at that, and we sometimes wonder in our hearts, especially those of us who are older, we wonder what kind of a world will this be for our children and grandchildren in the future if things continue on this trajectory? What's it going to be like in our nation for them? And at the same time, sadly, we see that same drift occurring in the church, and I'm talking about the church at large. We see churches in our country who profess to know Christ, but no longer preach that there is salvation in Christ alone. We see churches that have moved away from the authority of God's Word and they don't declare, in a sense, thus says the Lord or this is truth. They treat this book as the writings of men. And they kind of pick and choose. And that's why some things that were once uh, preached as sin are no longer considered sin because they'll say things like, we've progressed or we've changed or God spoke to them then, but He's spoken to us now. And they kind of pick and choose what they want to accept or believe and hold on to. And when you have a church that is no longer holding to the authority of God's Word or no longer believing in the uniqueness of Jesus Christ's life and death for our sins, you have an apostate church. You have a church that really has no reason to exist because it's lost the central message of the gospel. And that only adds to what we see going on in our world. In 2008, David Olson wrote a book called The American Church in Crisis, and he shared some statistics that described a church in decline. From 1990 to 2006, the population in America grew by 52 million people. A lot of that was immigrant growth that was coming in as well as from the birth rate. But during that same time, church attendance dropped from 20.4% to 17.5% on any given Sunday. So instead of keeping pace with population growth and increasing, the church was declining in attendance. It was interesting, I did some looking and in Minnesota just to kind of give you an idea of what was going on, though. Attendance during that time actually went up in evangelical churches 4.7%, but in mainline churches it dropped by more than 10%. So there is a shifting that is going on as well in those numbers. Today, 23% of Americans would profess faith in Christ and are actively involved in a church. That's now all churches, mainline, Catholic, evangelical. 23% of the people would say that they believe in Christ and they're actively involved in their church. But that means, at the very least, 77% of the population do not have a consistent, life-giving connection with the church. 77% of the population do not have that kind of vital relationship with the church and with Jesus Christ, at the very least. That's why America has become one of the largest mission fields in the world. And we see that reflected even in our own community. I mean, if you think about in your neighborhoods, how many people go to church, how many don't. Or when we come to things like Vacation Bible School and we look at the percentage of kids who come to VBS now who do not have a church background and they're coming, uh, it's like 40% to 50% are not from our church. Uh, We look at our student ministry and we're seeing increasing numbers of kids who uh, do not have a church connection. And they don't know the gospel. They've never had it clearly explained to them. And so here are these huge opportunities to minister, and that's why you know, I so strongly ask you to pray for our children's ministry, our student ministry, and for the things that happen this week at VBS. America has become a mission field. So what is revival then? We see the need for it with the shift taking place in our world, but what exactly is revival? Revival is not mass evangelism. It's not having a crusade. Revival is not a series of meetings that a church may host. You know, that used to be a trend where uh, in ages past, churches would have a week called a revival meetings this week, and they'd schedule that and do that. It's not that kind of thing. Revival also is not bizarre or emotional manifestations like holy laughter or barking like dogs or gold dust appearing on the skin. Revival is a deep work of God in the life of the church and his people. Let me give you some quotes about that. Stephen Alford said this about revival. He said, revival is a sovereign act of God in which he restores his own backsliding people to repentance, faith, and obedience. Revival is this work of God when He stirs up the church once again where we have slipped or we have drifted and He calls us back to Him. Or you can look at the next one from C.E. Autry who said that revival is the reanimating of those who already possess life. Or if you want to go to the Scripture and you look in the Old Testament, Hosea said it is breaking up of fallow ground when Israel had moved away from God, God would call them to break up their follow ground and He would send the prophets. Or in the book of Acts, Acts says that it is times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Those times that fall, that sweet work of the Holy Spirit that you sense in your life where we are drawn back into a love relationship with Him. But perhaps the clearest biblical definition of revival is what is found in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And if my people will humble themselves and pray, God will work. Now I want to give credit for some of the ideas for this series to two of my mentors and professors back in seminary. Walter Kaiser wrote a book called Revive Us Again that's a great book on revival in the Old Testament. And John Woodbridge came out with a recent book called A God-Sized Vision that's about revivals, historical revivals. Those are great books, encouraging to read. And some of the ideas for these theories and some of the illustrations will come from there. So what are the conditions for revival? When you look at 714, what we see there is that God gives us four conditions and he tells us three results that'll come when we pray. So what are those conditions for revival? I'm going to come to that, but I want to give you a little bit of background for this particular text. The context is this, that Solomon had just completed construction of his palace and the temple in Jerusalem. For over 400 years, God had not chosen to dwell in a temple. He had dwelt in what was called the Tent of Meeting or the Tabernacle. That tabernacle was constructed by Moses in the wilderness. It was where the people would go to meet with God and God chose to dwell there. The Ark of the Covenant was placed inside that tabernacle, the symbol of God's presence. And God would lead them with a pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. All the way through their wanderings, all the way into the Promised Land or wherever that tent of meeting was set up, there the people would go to meet with God. But David had on his heart the desire to build God a permanent place, a temple, a place where He would dwell among His people in that promised land. And God said to David, no, you're not the one to build it. You have been a man of war, a man of blood. But your son shall build it. It would be Solomon who would build this structure. And Solomon was given the ability, the creativity, uh, to do that, to design and build this kind of structure for the Lord. So a great celebration was planned when it was completed to dedicate the temple to God. The Ark of the Covenant was brought up and placed in the Holy of Holies inside that temple. Sacrifices were made to God. Hundreds of thousands of sacrifices because all of the people had gathered, they would be there for over a week for this great festival and celebration. And then when those sacrifices were offered to God, Solomon led in a prayer of dedication. A prayer of dedication. And when he finished, that's where we come to chapter 7, verse 1. Listen to what happened. Chapter 7, verse 1. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, And the priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. And when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and they gave thanks to the Lord. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine standing there witnessing these things as you saw fire from heaven come down? Not a fire lit under the sacrifices, but fire from heaven, fall and consume the offering. And then as you saw the Shekinah glory, not, not a cloud from the incenses being offered, but the glory of the Lord coming down and filling that place just like He had filled the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And it was so overpowering, this Shekinah glory of the Lord that the priest could not enter to minister there. The people knew. I mean, God had shown his approval and answer to these prayers by coming and manifesting himself in that place. And the people bowed down in worship. What an awesome sight that must have been. And when we go back and we listen to Solomon's prayer, in chapter 6, it's recorded for us from verses 12 to the end of the chapter. I'm not going to read it all. But Solomon identified seven specific situations where God's people would come and they would seek God's intervention. And they were things like this. Like in verse 22, he said, when a man wrongs his neighbor and is required to take an oath, and he comes and swears the oath before your alternate people, then hear from heaven and act. God, would you give us wisdom when we need to decide who's right, who's wrong, or how this should be settled. In verse 24, it was when Israel was defeated by an enemy in battle. God, when we come and pray, hear and act and answer our prayers. In verse 26, when there is no rain, when there's that kind of natural disaster or drought that occurs, God, when your people come and pray, would you hear and answer? And uh, verse 28, when there is famine or disease in the land and we come and pray, God, would you hear our prayers? Or in verse 32, when a foreigner comes to pray, so that all people might come and know that You are God. Again, it's just this picture that Israel was to be a witness to the nations. This temple was to be a place of prayer for all people to come and gather. And so he's saying, God, when the foreigner comes and prays and seeks You, God, would You hear and act so that they might know that You alone are God. In verse 34, when we are at war, would you hear our prayers and act on our behalf? In verse 36, when we are in captivity caused by our sin and we humble ourselves and pray, God, would you hear and act? Those uh, conditions, those situations that he described there are not exhaustive. They're not the only times. They were representative of the kinds of things that God's people would come to and seek his wisdom on. And so four conditions are given then. God says, I will do that. And he begins by saying, if my people who are called by my name will pray. God doesn't ask the wicked to pray. He doesn't ask the unbeliever to pray. He is asking his people who are called by his name to pray. That's what makes this a promise both Old and New Testament. This isn't like we're reading somebody else's mail. This is for all of us. That if we who bear the name of Christ will come and humble ourselves and pray, God says, I will hear and I will act. Are you a follower of Christ? Have you given your life to Him? Then this great privilege is for you to come and pray at any time. And what does God ask of us? He asks these four things. That we would humble ourselves. That we would subdue our pride and surrender our heart to God. That we would pray. And this prayer includes a personal acknowledgement of our sin. It's, It's confessing our sins to God and it's pleading for mercy as we make our request to God. It is seeking His face, which means we turn to God in faith and we seek His will and His righteousness. It's the same things that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount when He said that we should seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be given to us. Put Him first. Humble yourselves. Seek His will. And fourthly, turn. Turn turn from your wicked ways. It's the Hebrew word shuv that is used over and over again in the Old Testament for repentance. We repent of our sin and we turn from it. We acknowledge that what we have done is wrong or that we have strayed from Him and we do this 180 and we turn back to God. And we get right with Him. Now often God will use circumstances in our nation and in our life to try and get our attention. I mean, he'll he'll use things in our life that kind of bring us up short, and we say, whoa, you know? Man, I better better pay attention here. I better listen to this. But if it is not accompanied by repentance and obedience, there is no lasting change. Let me give you an example. When 9-11 in our nation when that terrorist attack took place those 5 Sundays after 9/11 in 2001 were the high point in church attendance in the past generation there were more people in church on those 5 Sundays it was record attendance than at any other time in our history but by the 6th Sunday and the following weeks attendance returned back to normal and then continued to decline There was an awakening, if you will, where people came to church, what's God doing here, maybe we need to pray about this, but soon they returned to their old ways, and there was no lasting change that took place. Was God trying to get our attention in that event? I think he was, just like he has tried in other events in our nation's history as well. But the memory of the event was short-lived, and it bore no lasting change. You see, where there is genuine repentance, there will be spiritual fruit. What does God say he will do when we pray? He says, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. This isn't a health and wealth message. This is not a way to try to manipulate God so that we can get what we want from God. No, these are the blessings that come when we are in a right relationship with Him. When we walk in obedience with God, when we're confessing our sin or we're right with Him, then God does work in our life. And there is blessing that comes. There's joy in our heart. There's a peace in our heart. There's a confidence that God is with us. And this is a word of grace. Repentance leads to restoration. There's a way to deal with sin, and it is to turn back to God. There is forgiveness when we admit our sin and turn to him. You know, it was interesting when I was doing some study on this week, Leslie Allen, one of the commentators, wrote this. He said, there is a tension here that every Christian pastor knows. On the one hand, there is this call for obedience and compliance and there are these conditions that god wants us to meet and god expects us to obey on the other hand there is this word of forgiveness and mercy and grace and if a preacher preaches the obedience and stresses that and the things that we are to do as followers of jesus christ sometimes he can sound like a legalist you know he's saying we got to do this and this and this On the other side, if a preacher preaches the forgiveness and the grace, it can sound like, well, sin isn't that big of a deal. We have forgiveness, you know, and he can sound like he's soft on what God is saying us to do. But both are true and both are necessary in our life that there is obedience that is expected of the believer. And we cannot sin and think that there are no consequences to that. Let me give you an example Just this week I was talking with a pastor and we were talking about marriage and some of the things that are going on and how we've seen this kind of shift and how we have people that are divorcing when there doesn't seem to be any reasons for it that we are really aware of in terms of biblical reasons for divorce. And this particular pastor was talking with a young woman who he had married them as a couple and now they were going to get a divorce and they were leaving. And he was talking to her about that and why. And she said, I don't want to talk about it. And he said, you realize though that if you break that covenant that you have made, you are committing a sin against God. And her response was, well, I'll just 1 John 1.9 it. I'll just just 1 John 1.9. I'll just, you know, confess that to God because it's easier to confess it than to work through things. Do you think we can do that and not have consequences in our relationship with him? I mean, do you think we can just kind of choose to sin in that kind of attitude and think that that's okay and I can just confess it and go on and there's going to be no problem? You know, in this situation, it was several years later, she called back, she had done that, she had divorced her husband, and then she ended up in a relationship that was so abusive and hurtful to her that she left that man after six months. And she said, I made a mistake, and I was wrong, and I ask your forgiveness. We cannot think that we can treat God with that kind of indifference to sin and that there are no consequences to it. This isn't kind of a freebie, you know, that you can take this verse and think that, well, whenever we get into a jam, we can just do this and then kind of live as we please. No, God calls us to obedience to a right heart relationship with him. There are times when we will stray or we will disobey and the place to come back is to him. But all you have to do is read the Old Testament to see what are the difficult things that the people of Israel went through in those cycles when they turned away from God and they were, found themselves in oppression or they found themselves dealing with difficulties that were terrific in their life. And in their desperation, they cried out to God and God was there. There's a connection in this passage between the heart and the land. Now I want to give you in this series some historical examples of revivals of times when God worked in a powerful way. One of these here that I want to tell today is the story of the Welsh revival that took place in 1904. No other nation can match Wales for frequency and fervency of spiritual revival. Between 1760 and 1860, there were 15 major revivals, according to Martin lloyd Jones. In the fall of 1904, a revival broke out in Wales, and it began in a place called Cardigan Shire. That's right, cardigan like the sweater, and then shire. And there was a pastor who was preaching that day, and he asked his congregation this question, do you honestly love God? Do you love Jesus Christ with all your heart, with all your soul? Can you say that to him? And there was silence in the congregation that day, And then after a time of silence, there was a young girl sitting there, and she said, if no one else will say it, then I must say it, that I do love my Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart. And God was working in another church situation with another young boy. His name was Evan Roberts. And Evan Roberts was a young boy who had grown up in the coal mines in Wales. Wales is west of Great Britain, west of London. It's in that western area there, and it has this history of revivals, but it has a history of people who worked in the coal mines there and the difficulties that went with life. And Evan was this young boy on whom God had placed the burden for revival. And for 13 years, he prayed for an outpouring of God's Spirit, He would go to prayer meetings as a young boy and he met with different groups of God's people and prayer became a major emphasis in his life. And he too, early in 1904, he accepted God's call to preach and he went to school to prepare for that. And he was there one day at a Sunday school service where he heard a man, Seth Joshua, lead in prayer. And one of that man's prayers was this request, Lord, bend us, Lord, bend us. And the Spirit of God used that simple statement to touch his heart. And he left that service that day saying, Lord, bend me. It's kind of like that chorus we used to sing, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. It was like God took those words and he took it to heart. And God gave him a burden for his home church. So he went back to his home church to conduct a week of services with the young people. And following a Monday night prayer meeting, On October 31st, 1904, there were 17 young people that stayed to hear his message. And his message that day had these four points. You can put those up on the slide. Number one, you must put away any unconfessed sin. Is there anything in your life that you haven't dealt with God, anything that you need to confess to be right with him, then do that today. Secondly, you must put away any doubtful habit. Is there anything in your life that you wrestle with that you're not sure is this really right before God that you need to take care of today and give to Him and say, Lord, it's just not worth it. I will put it away because I love You. Thirdly, you must obey the Spirit promptly when He prompts you to speak and He works in your heart. Then pray and go talk to that person or listen or do this or serve or call or stop by, whatever it may be. And fourth, you must confess Christ publicly. Share your faith. Don't be afraid of Jesus Christ and talking about Him, but talk to others about Christ. Well, that night, all 17 responded to His appeal. Crowds increased nightly. The Spirit was poured out as God began to work in that nation and the fires began to spread. Lost people were dramatically converted. 70,000 people in two months. 85,000 people in five months, over 100,000 people in the six months that followed that October meeting. That, you can't explain that apart from the work of God. God just sovereignly chose to work at that point, and he started these fires, and they spread. And these commitments were life-changing. Taverns closed due to the lack of business. The crime rate dropped radically, leaving the police with little to do. People paid old debts and they made restitution for thefts and other wrongs committed. There was even a work slowdown in the coal mines as the mules had to learn the new language of the converted miners. And it's just one of the funny things about it. They didn't understand the commands anymore. And news of the revival spread to other countries. People were spurred on to prayer. This revival spread to places like Korea, India, North America, and Korea. God worked. More than 80,000 new converts came in Korea in the period following that. That was more than the total number of converts that had been in China in the 80 years prior that missionaries were working there. I mean, it was a phenomenal work of God that began to spread around the world. G. Campbell Morgan said this about Evan Roberts. He said, God set his hand upon a lad, beautiful in simplicity, ordained in his devotion, and lacking all of the qualities that we have looked for in preachers, prophets, and leaders. You know, he wasn't a guy who had seminary training. He wasn't a guy who was polished, but he had passion, and he wanted to serve the Lord. And what we see in revivals like this, and no two of them are ever the same. They're always all different in how God works. But God makes himself known in ordinary places and powerful ways, and God uses ordinary people to accomplish his work. So where are we headed in this series? Well, there are four major revivals in Second Chronicles, Each one emphasizes one of the conditions that are stressed in verse 14. Some of them emphasize the humbling, some of them the prayer, some of them the seeking, some of them the turning. All are a part of each of those revivals. I mean, all of that is necessary, but you'll see different words emphasized as we go forward and look at these revivals. 2 Chronicles 7.14 is the key to understanding the book of 2 Chronicles. But I also want to share with you stories of revival. Historical examples, and you can put that up, of you know, some of the great revivals in church history to encourage you and to see how God has moved in extraordinary ways. But my prayer in all of this is Psalm 85.6. God, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Will you not revive us here, in this place, and do a work of your Holy Spirit that might touch our community, our nation, the people that we know and love. I'm going to close with another example. One of the famous musicians in Celtic Christianity was a man named Cademan. You may have heard of Cademan's Call, the music group. You know today the Christian music group? Well, this was the original Cademan. And of him, there was a man named the Venerable Bede who wrote the most important history on early Christianity in England. And this man, the Venerable Bede, said about Cademan that he was in the monastery of a certain abbess, and he was a brother who had been given a remarkable grace of God to write religious verses and to write songs. And this man was illiterate. He could not read himself, but when the Scripture was read to him and he would hear it, what he would do is he would go that night and he would ponder what he had heard and he would compose songs. He'd, he'd write music in the language of the people, the Celtic language, using the music of the people. You know it's interesting to me? The same thing is happening today among the unreached people groups that we are a part of. And with one of them, there's a woman who is starting to write Christian songs in the language of her people. And whenever that happens, you know, I mean, if people begin to sing their heart songs in the language that connects with them emotionally and spiritually, that is just so powerful to take spiritual truth and and sing that back to God. And that's what Cademan did. And one of the songs he wrote was this, and I just think it's really powerful. He said, teach us again the greatest story ever told. In time, the carpenter began to travel in every village challenging the people to leave behind their selfish ways, be washed in living water, and let God be their king. You plundered death and made its jailhouse shudder. You strode into life to meet your startled friends. I have a dream that all the world will meet you and know you, Jesus, in your living power that someday soon all people will hear your story and hear it in a way they understand. What a great prayer. That someday all the people would hear the story of Jesus and hear it in their own language and hear it in a way that they understand. That's a great prayer for us to join in praying to him too. That God would work in us and he would use us because how are they going to hear unless somebody tells them? How are they going to know Jesus unless somebody shares that good news of the gospel with them? And that is our privilege. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these ways in which you have worked in history and you continue to work today. And thank you for the prayers of your people who have truly known you, who have longed for others to come into a relationship with you too. God, will you not revive us again? Will you not send a fresh movement of your spirit upon your church today in this land and upon our nation that once again you would turn our hearts back to you? Call us in faith, call us in repentance, call us to obedience that we might know the joy of your pleasure on our life. In Jesus' name, amen.